Hi, it's great to welcome you to Lesson 2 in our study of the Gospel of Matthew. I'm Abraham Lee, teaching leader for BSF San Francisco, and this is our third talk in this series. I hope you're all doing well and enjoying rich discussions in God's Word with your groups. You know, learning uh, really takes a lot of work, and one of the things that cement our learning is being able to share and talk with others about what we've learned. So going into this week, I just want to encourage you with something that you might do. As you're going through picking up something new or important that you didn't understand before, but you do now, uh, try to share that in discussion with someone else during the week. Uh, not only is that a great way to evangelize and share the gospel, but I found that even if people don't care about what church you're going to or care to even visit a church with you, they would be curious if you mentioned something new about history or something that you're learning new in your studies, Like, and you might introduce it by saying something like, I'm really learning a lot about first century Israel these days, and I didn't know that we didn't have an exact number of the wise men that visited Jesus at his birth. Or you might even say, did you know Bethlehem means the house of bread and why that's significant? I think the more you start to share using uh, what you're learning in class with other people during your week will surprise you how many interesting discussions will come from um, using this method of uh, broaching uh, other people's interest in the Bible. All right, let's move on. Uh, before we go into the review of this chapter, I wanted to also take some time to point out some important points from the questions this week, uh, important points that deserve our special attention. These are aspects that we are not often taught or recognize when we read the Bible too quickly on our own or maybe even hear about these chapters through the sermon, but it's all in God's Word as we read it. Um, and some of those come from these questions. So let's first look at question three. Recognize here that Matthew describes a wide variety of people who are being introduced to the news of Jesus' birth. You get everyone up and down the social and political religious ladder getting some aspect of this news, this important vital news. That's the culmination of everything that they've known in school, everything that they've been taught through their reading of the Torah and the prophets. And, you know, it's the ability to pass it on that each of these groups have that's really significant to the wider population that they have, that they are actually embedded in. So the idea that the birth of Jesus, you know, it didn't happen in a small, private, secret, covert place. is an important point that we should be reminded of, that God had invited through various different people, various different means to get the word across about Jesus' birth. So the different people that you may have already discussed uh, in this uh, chapter are the wise men from the East who are planning, researching, preparing, and they've gotten together an entourage and gifts and making inquiries to finding Jesus. Then there's Herod, who's troubled, feeling threatened, plotting to murder, position himself against God. There's the All-Jerusalem, which signifies or points to the governing officials of the land who are disconcerted, just like Herod, possibly because they see Jesus as a disruption to their position. And then there's chief priests and scribes who knew the prophecy, not only from Micah, from throughout the Old, Old Testament scripture, but they're strangely disinterested, oblivious to the fulfillment that's taking place right under their nose. And then there is the city at large, people too involved in their own lives, distracted and unconcerned, but see a star 
strangely hovering over their city and um, just not knowing what to do about it. And then there are the great cloud of witnesses who have passed on, who may be watching this from the skies and from heaven and just uh, rejoicing to see the fulfillment of God's great promises being fulfilled uh, in these times. And so uh, various different groups, but they all have different responses. In question four, or yes, question four, what attitudes toward Christ in the Bible are common in our world today? We just take those groups and we find that they are all present. All those attitudes are present in our modern times. Attitudes today are the same. On Christmas, it becomes less and less about Christ, as we've seen in our society and throughout the world, and more about perhaps our own self-indulgent celebration over the holidays, uh, seeking other things. There are those who claim to know him, but largely are not eagerly seeking or searching his word, his works, or his activities among us. There are those who claim to understand Um, like the Pharisees and the religious rulers who have all the academic knowledge but are not diligently preparing for his return by investing in his kingdom. There are those rulers and officials who go with the flow. They're highly self-interested in their position and their status, and they don't want that disrupted. And they see all of this, but they fail to bear witness to God's work and hold out the word of truth to others. And there are those who, when hearing about him, feel threatened like Herod, threatened by Christ and work to undermine everything about God and his work in the world. And then finally, there are those in the larger population who could care less about the things of God and are wholly ignorant about ultimate things, about questions like, what is humanity? How do we, how do we get here? And what happens to us beyond this world? So... Back then, uh, the people's attitudes back then were not very different from our attitudes today. And uh, we just uh, should be remembering uh, about how God has come to us. You know, God comes to us through other people and through God's word. So we can really never underplay the important role of the social witness aspect of evangelism. It really is someone, one life touching another life. Uh, For those who did not have the wise men, who drew attention to the Messiah's birth, God sent angels to deliver the message. So the wise men were inadvertent witnesses to Jesus' birth. God used them with the star suddenly missing from the sky on an unexpected detour to divert them into the king's palace and to all these different people who could hear of this miraculous and wonderful uh, glad tiding of Jesus' birth. And then he also sent ancient texts by Daniel, his friends, and faithful scholars of during the exile. The diaspora were instrumental in getting the word across, even to the people in, uh, in the Persian Empire, so that the continuing memory of their witness could be passed down to the wise men who were alive during Jesus' birth. Question six, how did the Magi or the wise men find their way to Jesus? What does this reveal about God? Well, the star directed them until the point they made their approach to Jerusalem, and then it disappeared. And you might ask, why did it disappear at that moment as they're entering the city? Why would God allow that to happen? And I wonder if you had uh, discussed this with your groups, um, because it is kind of strange. And we we think of the star as being stationary, and, and being, con, you know, constant. And, um, but it, uh, from reading this, uh, we know that it isn't. 
It is uh, disappearing and reappearing. It is moving. So it is very much unlike the stars as we know it. And what this might point us to is that God gives the rulers and people of the land a chance to seek him. God gives everyone who should have been interested an unexpected invitation to respond to his gift of love. And that's powerful. You know, we say, you know, well, why isn't God being inclusive? God is extremely inclusive. And he recognizes that there are ways uh, by our confusion and our being distracted that we don't often see his movement of love in our lives. And he sends messengers and emissaries to demonstrate and to invite and welcome people into his household. We think only the shepherds were alerted, but God have noticed, have given notice to all manner of people in the way most needful to them. Shepherds didn't have the social network. They were out in the fields. So God sent angels. For others, God sent the wise men to show up and give them specific uh, morsels and uh, kernels of information for them to research and to make connections to be alerted to Jesus' arrival. God used the wise men to rouse up others through their unexpected detour to witness and hold out an invitation to Jesus' birth. And Jesus the King was born into a home you know, without walls or guards to keep people out. That would have been the most convenient thing for any king born in a palace, but Jesus made sure that anybody who wanted to come to him to celebrate with him and participate in that joyful celebration with God, when invited, they could come and do so. Invitations went out at different times, too. You know, Egypt received the Lord. Simeon and Anna, who faithfully anticipated the Messiah, were alerted by the Holy Spirit to the baby king when they went to the temple courts uh, to present the baby Jesus to the priests, where many other worshippers and priests would have been. And they caused quite a commotion when Simeon and Anna, who are, you know, people of very high standing in their society, constantly, reverently, worshiping before the Lord and people seeing them at in their older years, uh, being faithful in their worship and anticipation of the coming Messiah. It would have caused quite a scene. But the question is, did anyone else care? Um, that's not revealed to us, but it does leave us with the question, um, what are we looking at and what distractions might take our eyes off of what God is doing? And do we watch with the faithful servants in our midst, the elders and devotees in our churches and in our fellowships who are close to the Lord and listening to the messages God has given to share with the church? Because there might be something there that God is revealing through uh, the, the years of devotion and worship and closest to the Lord that our older elders of the faith may possess, that they may have to give us. God uses the Israelites in exile to spread the word of the Messiah through the diaspora into the world as well. So these ex exiles are not just tragic periods of absence from the land, but God uses even the disobedience of the uh, Israelites in their exile into the various different Persian or Assyrian or Babylonian empires to remind the Gentile or to teach also the Gentiles of God's love and his word. Perhaps these writings and teachings of the influential exiles like Daniel and his three friends and many others that uh, are recorded and some we don't know about, uh, 500 years prior to Jesus' birth, bringing them to the understanding of these promises of the Messiah's birth. God is gracious and not willing that any perish, we know, 
is what the Bible says, and he constantly is making known his marvelous message and sending invitations about his son far and wide. Some know, look into it, and, and take the journey to worship him, but we also know many do not. Those who know him come prepared to give the gifts of, of their recognition of his lordship over their lives. Question 10a asks, how did God lead Joseph and how did he respond? Joseph, not married this time, was the one solely warned in a dream just after the wise men left. The inclination for Joseph as the head of the household and someone who was protecting and providing for his family would have been to wait for others, possibly because, you know, he just had an entourage of uh, very important people coming bearing gifts. And um, the automatic thought would be perhaps there are more visitors who will come and bear gifts. And furthermore, Jerusalem is a familiar place for Mary and Joseph. And perhaps using the gold, uh, he could have settled down there. That is a natural human inclination to settle down in a place one is comfortable and where one has already kind of started to settle in. But Joseph obeyed immediately is what we're told. When we practice obedience to God, we are better in a place to respond to his kindness and direction in our lives. So if you're not in the practice, if we are not in the practice of obedience to God, it is very certain it will be harder and harder to obey him when things get tough in life. And so obedience is very much a practice that we have to grow into, starting with the small things and even the big things in our lives as a demonstration of our trust. Going on to question 10b, the significance of the flight to Egypt in Matthew's reference to Hosea 11.1. And in this question, I just wanted to remind us that there is a literary technique in the Bible called recapitulation, recapitulation, which is the technique of using lesser things to mirror and point to a greater truth that is similar but greater in scope and power or impact. So when Peter rightly identifies Jesus much later on in Christ's ministry, and that is found in Matthew 16, 16, uh, Simon Peter answers, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. To which Jesus responds and say, I say unto you, you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. It's not so much that Peter is the rock that he's going to be building his church, as our Roman Catholic friends might believe, but in this recapitulation statement, he is saying, upon the confession that Peter is making here, that Christ is the Messiah, the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God, upon this truth, he will be building his kingdom. And so Peter's confession is the seed of a larger confession of all believers to come, that Jesus is the rock of our salvation. This truth is what Jesus has always said in Scripture that he will be building his kingdom upon. Likewise, God called Israel out of Egypt by Moses. But a greater truth is that God calls Jesus out of the world, Egypt of which is a prefigure, to a mission and life greater, greater than Egypt, greater than uh, Moses, and not rooted in any national affiliation. He is the Messiah for the world. Next, moving on to question 14b asks, how are you helped to know that Jesus came from an unexpected place? And one thing I just want to emphasize here is God uses 
unexpected means that are quite contrary to the world's way of selecting and estimating and the use of pedigrees. Are you, you know, are you from uh, New York or San Francisco? What school did you graduate? All the ways by which we evaluate and judge and, uh, and, and kind of uh, elevate others in our estimation to achieve his wonderful plan. God doesn't use any of these. He often chooses the things and people and places this world would find foolish so that the greatness of his power and grace can shine through. And so I just wanted to rewind us of 1 Corinthians 1.27. For God has chosen the foolish of the world to shame the wise, and he has chosen the weak of the world to shame the mighty. He chose the lowly and despised things of the world and the things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. And I'd recommend reading the, con the context of this entire chapter to get a, a really great feel for how Paul is teaching us. God doesn't look uh, as man looks. He looks on the heart. So let's move to the uh, talk for today. The big idea is the sovereignty of God. God always takes care of his own and in his own way, and nothing can thwart his plans. And the divisions that we have here are Matthew 2, 1 through 11, Jesus, the king of prophecy fulfilled, and then Matthew 2, 12 to 23, Jesus, the king of eternity assured. So Matthew here is writing mainly to those who are familiar with the Torah, and they've had the Old Testament scriptures as part of their education, where God promised he would send a king to lead his people in righteousness. He provided specific details to help them know what they were looking for so that they would recognize him when he came. Now, Matthew's been inspired and empowered by the Holy Spirit to write an account of this good news that their true king has come, and he's been proclaimed in multiple ways that serve as evidence to prove it. In verse verses 1 through 6, we'll see God's proclamation, both in, in fulfilled prophecy and through nature as a new star lights up the sky. In verses 7 and 8, we'll see Herod's proclamation and the way he tries to oppose Jesus as the king. Verses 9 through 13, we'll see wise men proclamation and their humble and costly worship. So let's look at verse 1 and we'll see the proclamation God is making. After Jesus is born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Okay, God has given us several significant details in these verses. The town of Bethlehem, the King Herod, uh, the wise men, a very peculiar star, and the title, King of the Jews. Let's start with Bethlehem. It's a small town in the region of Judea, about six miles south of Jerusalem. It's Israel's capital city, and it was significant that Jesus was born in Bethlehem for a couple of reasons. First, another king was born there about a thousand years earlier, and that king is David. Let's recall that he was the youngest of seven sons and had no linkage to kingship. He was just a mere shepherd boy. And this boy, when God sent the prophet Samuel to anoint the second king of Israel, he was largely forgotten. Um, he was the last of his brothers. This is a reminder that God's people are often the most overlooked and misjudged by ways we look and esteem people of this world with our eyes. You know, we, we tend to look at people who are attractive and uh, by their size or by their shapeliness. All kinds of ways in which you look at superficial and external means may actually take us away from people who are actually close to and living and abiding with the Lord in genuine lives of faith. 
So I have a picture of David here uh, in front of you. Uh, someone least suspected to be the one that God had chosen. But God made it clear that David was to be the next king, not his oldest brother or anyone else. During his reign, God spoke to David and added a detail to the promise that he had made to David's ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that one would come who would be a blessing to the world. They heard that from them, a savior would come who would bless all peoples in the world. The Lord told David that one day a king would come from his line and he would sit on David's throne and reign forever. His kingdom would never end. This was a promise that all the generations remembered. They were expecting the king to come. And now the sitting king, King Herod, is hearing the wise men say, Where is the one born king of the Jews? We saw his star and have come to worship him. King Herod, or Herod the Great, was a power-hungry, brutal tyrant who was given the title King of the Jews as a steward and puppet king of the Roman Emperor. He wasn't born King of the Jews. He was supported in his taking Jerusalem by the military forces sent with him about 30 years earlier. He was not a descendant of David. Herod was actually not even expected King of the Jews. He wasn't even a Jew. Herod was actually a descendant of Jacob's twin brother, Esau, and therefore an Edomite. He wanted his title, and he was doing all he could to keep it. He built monuments and buildings in his name and established his legitimacy and desperately to make a name for himself through um, massive architectural programs in, a, in the land. He, he built the Herodium and 14 other lavish palaces for himself. He built Masada, a fortress on a mountain in the desert near the Dead Sea that was virtually impenetrable. And then he rebuilt the temple to make it even more grandiose than it had ever been before. Yet, with all of these things going on, he was also known to be ruthless in his rule because he was so paranoid. He went so far as to kill three of his, his sons and his favored wife because he feared he, she was conspiring with her own brothers against him. So at best, the Jewish leaders tolerated Herod as a necessary evil that they had to deal with to be allowed to continue their way of life and not lose their freedom to temple worship and to provide the sacrifices and the feast days. Herod was not accepted by the Jews as their rightful king. So when he hears from the wise men that they've come to worship the one born king of the Jews, he gets pretty stirred up. Who are they and where did they come from? What about the star that led them? Where did they come from? We don't know for certain their identities, and they may have been royal advisors and learned men with understanding of the library archives of their country's knowledge repositories. These great nations always had these grand uh, libraries uh, that archive knowledge of the past, which is quite important for them. So these men were men of the secret arts, the arts that usually involved a strong interest in astronomy. They were likely from Persia, which today would be modern-day Iran. So this caravan of people would have had a large party of servants and resources to make this journey of at least 500 miles because they, they've seen a new star rise in the sky. So they've done their research, they understood the star, it was a proclamation of the king of the Jews. Uh, and so this uh, information they had, they knew specifically had a, a Jewish source to it. And they don't uh, know the God of the Jews, uh, and Herod doesn't know the God of the Jews, but we can see that God's sovereignty allows graciously for them to be 
brought into uh, knowledge uh, and participate in worship of God's um, Messiah. The doctrine of God's sovereignty tells us that he has absolute power and authority to rule over all things for his glory as he advances his own wise purposes. Nothing is outside the scope of his power or his ability to rule and to bring to light matters difficult to understand by ordinary means to those uh, whoever he wills. In this case, they are the wise men. They were sovereignly directed to see the new light in the sky, sovereignly directed to realize that it was significant and to have them available to interpret what they were seeing to many others. And then the star directed them by moving so that they could follow it for weeks until they arrived in the capital city where Herod was uh, asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? That star was a powerful part of God's proclamation that the child to which it directed them to was born the king. The wise men might have only begun their understanding of Christ, but we have a full, we have a full picture today. What does it do to your heart to put all these pieces together and recognize how God has graciously provided this news, not only for them, but many people after them and even to us today and to you, where you are at and how that news came to you, that Jesus is King and Savior. Jesus is long-awaited Redeemer King, and there is no one else. No one else has been able to uh, say and to claim the uh, attributes and the designation that Jesus has. In modern times, kings have become outdated as they are a failed system to govern and care for others. The individual has become king, and that has its own self-centered flaws. As you think of your own current family situation, your future in this economic crisis, the health of your parents or your children or yourself, the government decisions that are being made around you and your own decisions that are being made in your heart, does it bring you comfort and confidence to hear that Jesus is king and that it's not some person or someone that we can enthrone, but God has sovereignly provided his son to be the one to reign over us and to guide us and shepherd us. That was absolutely not how Herod responded, nor anyone else in his administration, nor the religious rulers, priests, and scribes. None of them gave enthusiastic response. Verse 3, we pick up, When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. The religious academics knew where Jesus the Christ would be born, but the knowledge turns to plans of murder, not celebration. Matthew 2.6 references Micah 5.2, when it says, For this is what the prophet has written, But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will be shepherd of my people Israel. So prophecy was being fulfilled in their times. Whether 700 years or a thousand or several thousand years, do you see that God's word is preserved by his Holy Spirit? And he ensures that while humanity may forget many, many details about history and knowledge to learn and to ponder over, God will not let his word disappear from the face of the earth to the noise of knowledge being created by man. You know, we create so much knowledge. Uh, Apparently, we have written more information in the last two decades than in all human history. And undoubtedly, most of it is junk. But God's word prevails because he upholds his word. So the next time you have doubts about translations, possible corruptions, and contradictions that people say are in the Bible, think about God's faithfulness in preserving and fulfilling his word which told us accurately about the arrival of his son and the kingdom of his son that he is building right now. 
Human things become corrupt over time. God ensures that His word of truth does not corrupt over time. When you believe, and when I believe, that our God is sovereign, we can have peace and grow in faith despite our trials and sufferings. Uh, We can have patience in our waiting. We can have confidence that He is working good for His children, working good in His uh, people uh, for His glory and for the blessing of the world. When we don't believe that God is truly and totally in charge of His world, all of history and, and even in our personal lives, what happens? Well, instead of peace and patience and confidence, those things are replaced by fear and insecurity. We wonder if this life is going anywhere. And like Herod did, we might even struggle to regain control uh, through sinful ways that is damaging to those around us and um, is a direct attack against God. But because God is sovereign, what could be too much for him to handle? What peace does that give you today? Like Herod, the priests and teachers of the law, who should have known, they missed their chance to, uh, but the wise men were not going to miss theirs. They looked to the skies and God provided exactly what they needed, just as they needed it. In verse 9 through 11, we're going to see Jesus proclaim the king by the wise men as they bow humbly and intentionally in worship. In verse 9, it says, After they heard the king, they went on their way, and the star that they had seen when it rose ahead of them, uh, they followed until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. That was such a great detail that God added for us to indicate that this is not an ordinary star like anything that we've seen or known. This star rose and led the delegation of wise men to the king in Jerusalem and now went ahead of them six miles south to Bethlehem and it stopped right over the place where Jesus was. In verse 11, coming into the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary. They bowed down, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. This was not simply the act of bringing presents to the king in a customary sort of way to offer general respect or honor, especially to a person in a place of position or power. No, this was a heartfelt response from men who had position, and they were bowing to the ground before a woman in front of what is presumably a very simple house to worship her little child, Jesus, because he is the king. He is the king. His reign is an everlasting reign over all kings and all kingdoms. Jesus has been proclaimed by God through nature and through prophecy in his word, by God's uh, perfect word, despite Herod's desperate opposition and by the wise men's humble and costly worship. And so our principle for this division is that Jesus is the proven king worthy of worship. Principle for us, Jesus, the true king, is worthy of total worship. Jesus, the true king, is worthy of your total worship. If you have read the Bible, you realize that the totality of all the strange and diverse accounts in the Bible make no sense without Jesus. The words of the prophets make no sense until you realize Jesus is the key that unlocks scripture. Today, Jews largely have given up on waiting for the Messiah. Young people leave Judaism and even Christianity because we don't teach Jesus and how Jesus is a fulfillment of prophecy throughout the Old Testament. Jesus and no one else is the long-awaited king. The wise men bowed low to acknowledge his place over them. What are you? How about you and me? How do we bow to Jesus as the king of the world and as our own king? If not, what's holding us back? Maybe you have a question or two. Don't be afraid to ask questions and to seek counsel from your leaders for help and understanding. 
gaps or areas of the Bible that you don't understand. The wise men offer generous gifts to, because Jesus, the proven king, is worthy of our worship. What does that look like for you and me? What gifts can we bring to him to speak of his immeasurable worth? Our hearts, our attention, our affection. We can bring our minds. We can process information and make our decisions. We can offer our agendas even. Ask him first what is his plan and have a willingness to give up anything that doesn't fit. We can offer him our aspirations. We can let Christ give us our dreams. We can offer him our loved ones. How can we hold them with open hands before God in open worship to our King? We can give him our thanks and we can offer our witness. The wise men were warned in a dream not to go back to Herod. They listened to the warning and they returned by another route. When the wise men had gone, it says, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in the dream. Get up, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Joseph listened to the warning, even though it seemed counterintuitive. Travel at night was not necessarily safe, and they were taking a little child. Joseph woke up, Mary, we need to go. She didn't have the dream Joseph had, but she did know that God had given the dream, and she listened and trusted enough to take action. They took Jesus immediately during the night and left for Egypt. They didn't try to circumvent God's plan or negotiate with them for a faster, simpler way out. That often I find myself wanting to do sometimes when things get harder than I want it to be. They just trusted and they went and they stayed in that foreign country with no family, where the language was different, the currency was different, customs are different until God said this was the time to return and that Herod was dead. How amazing, how amazing that in their trusting obedience, God revealed more about Jesus even in, perhaps to the people that they live with in Egypt. Verse 15 says, And so was fulfilled what was the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. In verse 19, After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in the dream to Joseph and said, take, Get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who were trying to take the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up and went back to Israel. But God gave them some further information and one last warning. Um, that Herod's evil son, Archelaus, was reigning in Judea. And so having been warned in a dream, Joseph was afraid to go back to Bethlehem. You know, you wonder, why, did God, why didn't God punish those kings and those uh, people plotting for Jesus' life right away? And again, you might see it as God's grace. To give them a chance and all the people who had been witness to what the wise men had shared with them, to turn and repent and seek after the Lord while there was still time. That is part of God's love and grace and patience with us. Instead, um, the couple, after they returned, went north to the region of Galilee, back to their hometown of Nazareth. God had brought them full circle, perfectly fulfilling what the prophets had said. Jesus the king had been born in Bethlehem, was called out of Egypt, and now God is providentially ensuring that he is called a Nazarene, while he protects him to guarantee his loving eternal plan. It's amazing, and nothing and no one can alter the plan that God has anytime then or in the future, and everything will remain as God has planned. And here's our second principle. The principle is Jesus, the eternal king, provides security to believers. He's the eternal king, is the only one who can provide and give eternal security. You know, I teach business to my students, and we are always teaching them to identify risks and costs. There are all kinds of acronyms associated with identifying risks and costs. There's something called FUD, which uh, represents fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And then there's another one called VOLCA. It stands for Volatility, Uncertainty, 
complexity, and ambiguity. There are actually websites offering leadership skills and strategies to help a person navigate Volka and Fad in our world and, and how it constantly surrounds us in every decision we have to make. We all know that our world is full of constant shift and our lives are full of Fad and Volka. We all have examples of how we and those we love have been personally impacted by uncertainty and doubt, confusion, uncertainty, uh, complexity, uh, ambiguity. Jobs are uncertain. Health situations are unsettling. Hurting relationships are far more unstable than we want. It's hard and we lose sleep over it. It's unnerving and our bodies and minds can break under the load. But Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Our God has given us hope right here in Matthew chapter 2 because tonight we have heard the good news of the one who doesn't change. His love and plan for us are always steady and sure. His plans are as solid as His sovereignty. God's word in Isaiah 9 says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Think about that, a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. The government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Who is this permanent king, this great eternal king, that brings such stability and assurance, comfort and confidence? His name is Jesus, and He is the only and true King.